Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 621 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 8th of May 2022 as I record this. On today's show, I'm talking about writing a successful crime thriller series with Angela Marsons, but it's much more than a craft discussion, it's also about mindset. Now, I love talking to Angela because she's just wonderfully honest about how she had to overcome class and education barriers to break through in her writing career and why she loves her publisher so much. She also has a wonderful black country accent, so I know you'll enjoy listening to her. So that's coming up in the interview segment. So nothing in publishing or book marketing this week, but my personal update is I am back from Arizona and jet lagged again, but the other way this time. I much prefer the jet lag when I go to America because I like getting up early. <laughs> so I tend to be up around 2am and I get a lot done before anything happens. But this way it's a right pain. But um, yes, I went for a conference on the creator economy and I had an extra few days to get acclimatised. The desert botanical gardens in Phoenix is a must see and the hummingbirds in the cactus flowers was glorious and I also had a day out around the stunning Red Rock area of Sedona. Now I first visited that area in the mid-90s so I was still uh, I think I was 17, 18, something like that. And my memory of being in that area made it into Stone of Fire, my first novel, where the climax of the book is at the biosphere between Phoenix and Tucson. And on this trip, I took some photos of the saguaro cacti and used them to mint a new NFT with a collectible edition of the rewritten Stone of Fire. So I was just really thrilled to do that again at about 2am one morning. (laughs) But I just, it was just lovely seeing that area again and I'm still processing the trip as in I'm still thinking about the content of what we talked about and lots of other things so I'm not going to go into my thoughts on the conference right now. I also have a potential books and travel episode I want to do on getting back out there again post-pandemic and all the things I noticed about America this time. I feel like before the pandemic I used to go to America so often that I kind of got used to how different it is from England but it really is super different (laughs) and of course Arizona is a very different climate to here in Bath so lots to think about and I will produce some more content about all of it once I've had time to think. Since I was super jet lagged and up at 2am I did work quite a lot on how to write a novel before the conference so I'm getting there and this week I will be printing the draft for hand edits so I'm definitely well into this and I, I yeah I feel every time I work on it I'm trying to simplify and simplify and simplify down. I'm sure like me you own hundreds of craft books I, I've been going through a lot of them and I, I do have hundreds of craft books and it's so funny because actually Actually, when I look at a lot of the craft books I have, I haven't implemented so many, so much of it. <laughs> and the reason why, partly, is because I want to actually recommend a book that is kind of more mindset than craft. Especially if you are a discovery writer, I highly recommend checking out Dear Writer, 
Are You Intuitive? by Becca Syme and Susan Biscoff. Now, I, it's only just a new book. I read it on the journey out and it really did clarify a lot of things for me because I am a discovery writer and I am intuitive. So yeah, I mean, I'm an INFJ as a Myers-Briggs type. And however much I have really tried to plot and organise and do spreadsheets and all of that, I am just not someone who does that. And I think of novel writing is more like wrangling chaos than anything else. And I feel my way into a story. And what this book, Dear Writer, Are You Intuitive, helps you with is if you're like me and you think there might be something wrong with your process, there isn't something wrong. And it will free you from a lot of hang-ups. Now, that doesn't excuse you know, you have to try and improve your craft. And of course, in this book, I have a lot about the different craft things that I've learned along the way. You have to learn your craft, but equally, there are some things around story that are more intuitive. So yeah, highly recommend that book. Dear writer, are you intuitive? In useful stuff. So less intuitive, but certainly more organised are things around book marketing. So Mark Dawson and James Blatch from SPF are doing a webinar very soon as this goes out on the five key tips for profitable book marketing. And let's face it, we can throw all the money we like at book marketing, but that doesn't mean it's going to make you a profit. So this uh, webinar on five key tips for profitable book marketing will be super useful. The webinar is on Wednesday, 18th of May, 2022, 4pm US Eastern, 9pm UK. And it's aimed at authors who are just getting started or those who want to revisit the basics of book marketing in order to make book sales more profitable. So you can use my affiliate link, thecreativepen.com forward slash 18 May, 18MAY. And if you can't attend live, you can register and you'll get the replay. Links in the show notes as ever. Now the webinar is free, but if you join the self-publishing 101 course through my affiliate link, I receive a percentage of the sale at no extra cost to you. Now I highly recommend the 101 course if you are new to self-publishing or if you want to revisit the core principles and reset your author career. So check out the webinar at thecreativepen.com forward slash 18 May. That's 1-8-M-A-Y. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments and pictures this week. I have had a load of pictures on Twitter, which I love. Remember to tweet me at the creative pen with a double N with pictures of where you're listening. Christopher Wills left a comment on the interview with Theodora. I am one of those writers who is concentrating on improving my writing. So I've ordered Theodora's book. I know marketing is useful and important, but it's not something I want to spend a lot of time or money on. Refreshing to hear both your views. So um, remember, Theodora did the seven figure fiction episode a couple of shows ago. Bernie Anderson sent picture saying, sharing these trolls from Helsinki in Finland. How many people walk by here every day and do not see these beauties? Sent a lovely picture of some stone gargoyles with funny faces from Finland. And Bernie says, nice to explore a new city while also catching up with the podcast. And finally, James Felix sent a lovely picture exploring Somerset while listening to the show and a picture of him with his lovely dog. I think that's a spaniel. So yes, email me, Joanna at The Creative Pen, tweet me at The Creative Pen or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark. I use Ingram Spark to print and distribute my self-published print books wide because with Ingram Spark it's my content but they help me do more with it. 
So why even consider Ingram Spark? Well, if you only use KDP Print, then bookstores, libraries, universities, print-on-demand sites in many countries cannot even consider selling your book because you need to offer a discount and you need to be in the catalogues that they order from. Uh, none of these places are going to order your print book from Amazon. So if you want your print book to be really wide, then use Ingram Spark. Now remember, even if you're exclusive for ebooks and even audiobooks, you can be wide with print and uh, you can do print only with Ingram Spark. You'll get access to over 40,000 retailers, independent bookstores, libraries, schools and universities, chain bookstores and more across a global network, including bookstores like Foils, Blackwells and Waterstones in the UK, bookshop.org, Booktopia in Australia and New Zealand, Chapters Indigo in Canada, Walmart, Target and loads of other independent stores in the USA. Now, of course, it means your book will be available for those places to order, you will still have to drive demand. But personally, since having my books wide on Ingram Spark, I have had my books in a lot more libraries and bookstores, and I've even run into them on shelves in various stores, which has been very exciting. You can choose to use returns, but it's not necessary. Personally, I do not do returns. And you can choose your discount percentage. You can also do bulk ordering to different places in the world. For example, when <laughs> before the pandemic, I did some speaking in Australia. Australia and New Zealand, I had books ordered there. Well, in fact, I still have a box in New Zealand <laughs> for the event I was going to do in December, which I, I didn't because of COVID. But yes, uh, I've had people email me and order books to bookstores and I can just send them direct through the Ingram site. So yes, it all works very well. So if you want to go wide with your print books, what are you waiting for? It's your content. Do more with it. Head on over to ingramspark.com. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time for this show is sponsored by my patrons, especially the extra in-between episodes. And I do have some more coming soon. Thanks to new patrons this week, Heather Brown, Jen Cosgrove, Cindy S. Yantis, Edie Kaufman, Karen Peridon and Michelle Phillips. And thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. It does mean a great deal to me in many, many ways. And uh, if you would like to support the show, you get the extra monthly Q&A audio where I answer questions on writing craft, business, uh, new NFT stuff, futurist stuff, anything you like, basically, including personal questions about uh, things like intermittent fasting and stuff like that. <laughs> so you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Angela Marsons is the Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling author of crime thrillers with over 5 million books sold and translations into 29 different languages. So welcome to the show, Angela. Well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, so pleased to be here. I've listened to the podcast many times. It's fabulous. So I'm absolutely thrilled to uh, get the chance to have a chat. Oh, brilliant. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. I always loved writing at school. I used to love the feel of uh, a pencil on paper and just just getting the ideas down and exploring my feelings and that kind of thing. And I wasn't really good at a, a lot at school. And then my English teacher, um, when I was about 12, 13, asked if she could bring in a couple of books that were above my reading age. And they were Andrea Newman books. And that, that I read them and they got me totally hooked on exploring emotions and frailties and just 
people in general. And that was when I realised that as well as loving reading, I wanted to be the person telling some stories as well. And I, I wanted to be writing these things. And from that point on, I just used to write down everything. I used to explore different situations. I would pretend that my dad had left us and then I would explore how I felt about it. I'd write all these feelings down and I'd be in absolute bits by the end of it. And he'd only gone to the pub. But at the time, you know, I made it feel real so I could explore how I felt about it. And then I started writing short stories and I would submit them to magazines. Um, never, Never actually got one accepted but then I moved on to novels and started uh, submitting those as well and that was a very very long process until Bookature gave Silent Scream a chance in 2014 I think it was that they signed me so it was a long journey but I wouldn't change anything about it. Oh brilliant so what else did you do for your day jobs along the way and did day jobs have they featured in your books in any way? Oh, they certainly have. I mean, I started out in just admin because when I was at school, it was the best thing you could do was learn to type because it was assumed that you would be in an office job when you left school. You weren't really taught to aspire to anything like writing. That was, you know, that was not for people like me. So I did all the the things I was supposed to do, the type in the office practice. So I spent quite a few years just generally going from office job to office job. And then I somehow ended up in security and security management. And I spent 19 years at um, a shopping centre managing a team of 72, which has given me a great deal of fodder for for the books. Um, So, yeah, shopping centres are featured. Security officers have have featured. And I like to think that everything is is ammunition. It's all inspiration for people and situations. So it was mainly security security management that I spent my working uh, working life doing. Mm. You said that not for people like me, writing books was not for people like you. Maybe explain what you mean by that, because obviously we've got listeners from all over the place, but I feel like we do have quite a class system in the UK. So why did you feel like that? And, and how did you, I guess, change that that to be something else? I think um, it was just our environment, uh, very working class, and it was considered that you'd done well if you did manage to end up in an office. It was just the way it was. I, I, I don't think there's anybody to blame, but teachers kind of like that was your target, that was to work in an office and get a nice, solid, stable job. I mean, the really intelligent people were encouraged to go into banking and that kind of thing. But on our options of of choices of subjects that we we could take, it was, there was never anything creative writing. I took, obviously, English literature and English language, but there was nothing... There was nothing else that that you could take or do to head you in that direction. It was all office based. Although I am glad I learned to type now. Such <laughs> <laughs> typing has come in very very useful for the second draft and the third draft. So it, it, it was you were guided in that direction. You were guided towards towards office work and. The boys were guided towards woodwork and metalwork, and there, there wasn't many. There weren't many opportunities around that. And so how did you break out of that attitude? Because some people, I think, feel 
sort of hemmed in by societal attitudes to what they should do. But obviously you have broken out of that. I think it was just because I loved writing so much. I, I did it in my spare time. I didn't go to college. I didn't have any formal training. I just read books, uh, looked for inspiration, read how-to books. There weren't podcasts around then. It, it was literally just getting books from the bookshop. I mean, even Amazon wasn't a thing then. Oh, dear me, I'm showing my age now. So it, it was a case of buying books and reading them and getting inspiration and, and then sitting and down and just writing and I think that's the best way of learning the craft is to just keep doing it just keep writing and I I do firmly believe that nothing is wasted everything that we write even if we then look at it and think oh my goodness that's a bag of rubbish I'm never going to let anybody see that I still believe that we learn something through everything that we write so I just kept doing it in and around day jobs to get up early um, and write and then stay up late and do some more writing and started to submit I mean I started to submit um, short stories first of all to writing magazine and writers news and the first time I actually got shortlisted was the very first validation I ever had that you know actually I've got something I don't know what it is, but I've been shortlisted for a competition and that that must have kept me going for about 10 years because that's the worst thing is certainly when you've not really had any education, you think, am I just chasing a dream? You know, but while chasing the dream, you're doing something that you love and that you really enjoy and that you would be doing anyway. If the passion is there, the passion is there, you're going to write whether you're getting published or not, because you just can't help yourself. You see a pencil, you see a notepad, and that's it. The, you know, Put those together and you're going to start writing something. So I think it was just a case of keep trying, keep trying. But my partner, Julie, we've been together 35 years, so she's been on this journey every step of the way and she would just constantly encourage me sometimes I'd have five six seven rejections come back in one day I felt sorry for the postman because he was lugging these three chapters and synopses about and bringing them back to me and she would Julie would always say it's their loss it will happen it's their loss it will happen and she kept the faith far more than I did but I never stopped writing sometimes I would stop submitting for a few months and and just concentrate on the writing and eventually eventually it did happen she was right Um, but it took a while it took a while well I love that you've had such a supportive partner and I know that's hard for some people who don't have that and I love that you you got there eventually but I wanted to also bring up something else so listeners again we have listeners from over 200 countries in the world and you have quite a particular accent which I think uh, we should talk about because your books are also set in a particular area so so tell us uh, a bit about that and what's so special about your area well the thing is I spent many years writing books that I thought that publishers would like, using characters that, I, again, I thought that they would like. And I avoided my local area, the black country, thinking, well, that's not sexy. That's not appealing. You know, good books are always set in London or Liverpool or Manchester, big city where you can, you know, really explore the culture and the diversity. I thought, well, Nobody's going to want to read about the black country. And then, of course, 
year-on-year rejection on rejection, Silent Scream, the first book in the Kim Stone series, was a kind of bit of a rebellion. And it was a case of, okay, I'm going to write about the character that's been in in my head for a very long time. And I'm going to set it in an area that I know, yes, it's dark. Yes, it's industrial. But so is my main character. She's quite dark. And so actually, they could work quite well together. And so Silent Scream was kind of my rebellion book. And it was my first crack at a crime book. And I fully expected to get to 40,000 words and hit a wall and think, oh, well, at least I gave crime a try. But it just kept coming. And it's almost like the character took control of the pencil. And I started having to rewrite ideas. because I thought, no, she wouldn't do that. And I just explored the area and thought, no, this, this works, this character in my local area that I know and understand works well. And, and that was it then. It was like, okay, she's always going to be in the black country because <laughs> that, that's what works. So I think that even if people don't know the black country, they can identify with an area that's rich in industry or was in years gone by in coal, in steel. And I think they can identify with that kind of area and and that kind of community. And of course, for you, it's authenticity in voice as well, isn't it? Because that is your area so and your character's there. And so how much of you is in Kim Stone? <laughs> I often say to people, and I get lots of people who say, you know, what would Kim do? She's um, probably a, a good representation of what I'd like to be, but with better social skills, because she's very determined and she she's very focused and diligent and tenacious. So I'd, I'd like some more of those qualities. But I think uh, there's not too much of me in her. I, th- I think there's a lot of uh, qualities that I wish I had more more of but uh, no the voice had just been in my head for a long time and I never actually let her out because I didn't like her myself I didn't like the sound of her so it was guys if if I don't like her the readers aren't going to like her very much so I best just keep her in there (laughs) (laughs) oh well no I love it now just coming back to the sense of place so the the black country is basically the west midlands of the UK people can have a look on on a map but it's not actually a massive area I mean it's not like a whole country it's an area in the country but you've got 16 books in this series so how do you plot and plan these books while still keeping them in the same area do you use the same places over and over again for example sometimes sometimes I use areas that are very familiar to people and then I do sometimes make some areas up or some locations up if, if I can't think of somewhere that fits exactly what I want but I'll kind of model it on something similar in the area and just give it a different name but now there's there's sort of like plenty of small areas of of the black country to to explore and because the West Midlands police forces is I think it's the second largest in in the country second to the Met the it, it does cover quite a vast area and although in the books Kim covers um Hal's Owen under the Dudley and Hal's Owen a policing unit we can have a bit of uh, license and, and send her elsewhere around the borough because she's a bit nosy and she would uh, kind of like get involved in areas that don't really concern us so we do have the scope to use the entire West Midlands really. 
<laughs> no, that's brilliant. Now, as I mentioned, though, so there are 16 books in the series so far, and many listeners want to write a long running series, but it can be difficult, right? So what are your tips for writing a long running episodic series? I think definitely start off with characters that you yourself feel strongly about and that you want to explore. I deliberately uh, made Kim in a a, a work relationship with a happily married man because I didn't want the reader to constantly be thinking, well, they won't, they. It's a very clear, no, they won't. But that gives me the opportunity to introduce quite a bit of banter uh, between them because Kim hasn't really got any friends except for Bryant, her work partner. And so we have quite a, a, you know, a lot of banter there. So although there's no romance between Kim and other characters, I soften the darkness with the humour rather than the romance, because that's not how I want to write the character. So there's plenty of opportunities for humour. So all of the characters that are in the core team, there's lots that I want to explore about their characters, but also, <coughs> excuse me, I bring in different characters on a sort of like consultancy basis to just mix it up a little bit, give another dynamic. And also it's important to know when a character has served their time. And I did do something in book eight, which has caused a lot of bloggers and reviewers to say that they'll never, ever forgive me. I won't say what it is, but it is important to know if there's nothing more about a character that you've got to say that will interest the reader. And it's a tough decision, and I cried right in certain scenes, but to try and keep it fresh, you have to let certain ones go. But also, I think it's creating characters that readers can identify with And that's one of the things that always comes up in reviews about the books. And the books are often referred to as a pair of old slippers, which I take as a huge compliment because people will say they open the book and joining the characters again is like putting on a pair of comfy old slippers. And there's that comfort in knowing the characters and feeling content in that space that they kind of know how the characters are going to act, how they're going to respond in certain situations. And so I think, you know, they don't always have to be completely likeable, but they do. Kim isn't completely likeable, but she does have redeeming features. She's quite rude, but she's passionate. So always give, you know, the reader a reason to like the character if you want them to like them to hate them if you don't and and give a good cross-section of personalities so what did you set out to plan a long-running series like six because 16 books I mean did you think that far ahead or how did you do the plotting and the planning right at the beginning no I, I had no no idea by the time Booker you assigned me uh three books were um already written because I I had been with a London agent for two years, which ended really rather badly. And that was the worst time of certainly mine and Julie's time because I'd I'd given up work to try and give the writing thing a go. And I'd taken voluntary redundancy after 19 years. And suddenly we were selling our possessions to pay the mortgage. And that went on for a few months. And I finally got a job working night shifts, 12-hour night shifts, And then, excuse me, the reader that I'd 
worked with at the agency, she'd sent the uh, silent screaming to Bookature without me really knowing. And she let me know. And I was like, oh, that's nice. And I couldn't really get excited about it because I absolutely knew that the response was going to be, we like it, we just don't love it, which is the response I'd had for over 20 years. But then when they did respond, which was a few days later, there was no but. And it was like, what other books are written? What other ideas have you got? So I'd got three books written and they wanted to sign me initially for four. And I I didn't really have a plan beyond those four because I just thought, well, you know, it'd be nice if 500 people read Silent Scream, see what, what happens. I didn't have any expectations. So there wasn't really a long-term plan at all Mm. um I always knew that there would be a lot of stories that I could explore with Kim and I don't plan I'm awful for I'm a complete panster I tend to write the books around a subject that interests me or intrigues me and then I build a plot outwards from that subject and that that's how I plot so I tend to know how I'm going to start how I'm going to finish and the in-between is a complete and utter blur and I allow it to happen organically and once I start writing that's when I get ideas for other characters and other storylines so I'll be writing and then I'll be making notes on another um, piece of paper saying oh and when she goes here she'll meet this person and then this person's going to have this story so I do find that my best ideas come once I'm actually writing the book as long as I know the first two or three chapters, uh, I can then get on a roll and then the bite comes. I always call it the bite. And I don't want to put the pencil down. I want to be in my room every minute of the day just getting this story down on paper. Oh, it's so lovely to hear about that. And coming back on, because I'm similar to you, I'm like, oh, this I, this subject really intrigues me. Uh, like the history of anatomy, uh, my book, Desecration. Yeah. I went to an anatomy museum in London and I'm like, whoa, body parts in jars. That's interesting. And like, <laughs> yeah, who are these people and how did they get there? And what if there's a murder in the anatomy museum and that kind of, and then it was like, yeah. right. Yeah. And then I yeah. looked at that. So t- tell us about some of the subjects that have intrigued you that have, have spun off into stories. Well, in um, in Lost Girls, which remind, that was book three, it remind, remains my favourite. I, I wanted to explore the dynamics of a friendship when both children were kidnapped and, and I just wanted to explore that what that would do to the to a friendship, what that would do to the parents. And it was such a horrific situation to be in. How do you try and save the life of your own child while knowingly sacrificing another child that you know almost as well as your own? And so that was just an idea that built. And that reminds my favourite book. Um, book four. Play Dead, I wanted to explore, very similar to what you were just saying, a body farm. I wanted to explore what kind of experiments that they do on a body farm. And I did have many, many emails after Play Dead saying, does this facility actually exist in the West Midlands? I was like, no, it's completely fictional. We don't have a body farm. But the research that goes into looking into these things is, I love it because then I'm learning And I love to learn about new subjects. I wanted to write about hate crimes, which I did in book six. I wanted to write about cults and the methods that they use for, you know, pulling you 
in, which I did in, I think it was book 12. Most of the books, all of the books come from either a subject that interests me or an idea that I just want to explore and then build a crime story out from that. So I suppose the crime story comes second to the interest in the subject. Yes, totally the same for me. So I really love that you say that because that's how I start. And I feel like everybody starts in different places in terms of how the book starts, uh, how the idea starts. And then we all end up in the same place, which is we all have a finished book with, uh, you know, the same types of things in character and plot and theme and all of that. But we can all come from it from different angles, right? It doesn't matter where you start as long as you finish with a a book. (laughs) Definitely. And I think as well, I think you can get caught up in what is the right and wrong way to do it. Because once I said like I was doing, I was lucky enough to uh, do this for a living, I started to think I'm doing it all wrong now. I'm not planning. I'm not plotting. I'm not doing chapter outlines. I'm not doing writing out character profiles. And you, you can get caught in thinking that one size fits all and that everybody must do it a certain way. And I did try that with a book and I got to about chapter seven and I was bored because there was no surprise in it for me. I knew exactly what was going to happen from start to finish. And so there wasn't that organic surprise of, oh, here's a new idea. I know what I can do with that character. And it went in the bin. And I learned from that. I thought it may not be everybody's way of doing it, but it's my way of doing it. And I'll keep doing it until it doesn't work anymore. And luckily, it it continues to work. I always breathe a sigh of relief when I get to the end of the first draft of a new book. And it's like, oh, I got there. It's never a given. But I do think that we we can become embroiled in, in what is the right and wrong way to do something. What's right is what works for you. Totally agree. And it's interesting you mentioned the the body farm there. I I get fascinated with these things too. And do you think there's something in uh, the sort of darker crime writer? I mean, you sound like we don't know each other. We've never met uh, in inverted commas before. And I, you come across as a very happy, bubbly person. And people say the same about me. And yet we write these kind of (laughs) darker books. What 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 role does writing darker things play in our I guess, in our lives? And how do you deal with some of what I'm sure people say about you in the same way they say about me? (laughs) They they do. I mean, I do have messages in the nicest possible way saying, how do you sleep at night? But I don't have any trouble sleeping at all, to be honest, because I, I think I write about what probably what I'd like to read about. And if I don't find it interesting, I don't think anybody else will find it interesting. So I think a lot of the things is you can explore. And I've always said there's not any subject that I wouldn't explore, however horrific, as long as it's handled sensitively. And I think that that's where you have to be careful is how much detail you include, because we don't want to be sensationalist about any subject. I don't want any headline grabbing lines that cause people to feel revolted or real negative emotion because at the end of the day, we're entertaining. So, for example, when, you know, I read a lot about body farms and researched it, there was an awful lot left out because it wasn't necessary for the story. 
So I probably take it on on what I want to read, the level of detail that I'd like to read. And in the case, in in the books over the time, I've explored child abuse um, and child cruelty, but I've tried to do it sensitively so that people get a picture of what I'm writing, but I don't need to spell it out. I don't need to put people in that kind of position of feeling uncomfortable or don't want to trigger anybody. So I think you can write about subjects, but you just have to try and do it sensitively. Yeah. And I think if people are reading crime thrillers, they they know what they're going to get, <laughs> don't they? I mean, that's it. It's part of the genre. It, it, it is. But uh, surprisingly, the amount of emails I get with saying I didn't realise that this was involved and I've looked back and I thought but it was on the blurb and you respond as as politely as you can because you don't want anybody to be upset after reading any of the books or any portion of the books but unfortunately you can't list everything that everybody you know might be offended by because we're all offended by different things I personally can't read anything to do with animal cruelty I can have serial killers murdering as many people as you like but I can't read anything about animal cruelty because it stays with me and the pictures I can't get out of my head afterwards so it it affects me quite negatively but yeah, it's, it's a fine line. It's a fine line of trying to do the story in your head justice, but trying not to offend anybody. I mean, I, I get emails saying about the use of language, which I do, I do try and keep bad language to a minimum. But then I get messages saying, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain. And it's like these are police officers. They have to show their frustration and horror and disgust somehow and oh my golly gosh isn't going to cover it every time (laughs) sometimes we need something a little bit stronger (laughs) yes and these are all decisions we have to make as authors it's funny on the swearing because the very first couple of novels I wrote had some swear words in that Americans consider swear words and some British people don't consider swear words and in the end I just took them all out I was like you know you're fine (laughs) fine with the the murder and the explosions and all of that but not the swear words so as you said we're we're entertainers we write the books we want to read but also with there are some lines that we do have to set up for our own writing and then look if people don't want to read your books they're not going to read your books right they make their own choice that, that's the way you have to look at it in the end. I mean, when you've made a mistake, and I, I made a mistake in a recent book, and it was my own fault, and I had a lady contact me to say that she was most upset by my use of the term committed suicide and not realising what I'd done. Obviously, I went and had a look, and I sent back a totally apologetic email explaining that my own, that was my fault, my ignorance. I should have known better about the term being no offensive and it's not a mistake I will ever make again so readers letting you know how they felt about something actually can be quite a good thing and I think when you've made a mistake you just take it on the chin and you admit it and you apologize and you just don't do it again yes and we should just say there that the term died by suicide I believe is the correct exactly yes yeah and 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 that's just partly to do with our age as well, I think. It's that we're brought up it with a, is. a certain it thing. Is like, yeah, I, I never thought of the word committed 
as being in relation to a crime. So it was a complete and utter revelation to me because it was just a term that I'd grown up with and being told it was an outdated term. It was an education for me, but I was thankful to, mm. to be suitably advised, if you know what I mean, because it, it's I learned from it and I won't do it again because I would hate to cause any offence to a family that's been so, through such a, a tragedy by me just not knowing the correct phraseology. So, you know, yeah. we do make mistakes and we just have to hold our hands up and I didn't occasionally just said, I am so sorry and it will not happen again. Yeah. And as you mentioned toward the beginning, a lot of this is about learning and we put our learning in things and then we change them later if necessary. And that's what that's life. You can't <laughs> you can't be right all the time on every single thing. So I think Absolutely. that's ex- exactly right. But I do want to just ask you about publishing, because you mentioned earlier that you had a bad experience with an agent, that you'd got to a point where you were selling your possessions because you'd been laid off and you were doing these night shifts. And it sounds <laughs> An absolute nightmare. So <laughs> tell us about it because Bookature, I mean, some people might know, some people don't, but it's a digital first imprint. So tell us about Bookature and why, um, what the difference is, I guess, between digital first publishers and um, other types of publishers. Well, I think one, one of the main um, differences, and certainly for me, it works, is the schedule. I write two books a year and everything in digital publishing is so immediate there'll be a cover reveal and then a little bit later the the book will go on net galley and then you'll have a publication day and then before you know it you've got a cover reveal for the next one and net galley and lots of things happen through throughout the year which obviously with traditional publishing it's um, a lot slower and and longer process than that so I absolutely love the pace of the digital marketing the books have been on shelves in the supermarkets and obviously when I was writing all those years the dream was absolutely to see the books on shelves in supermarkets and bookshops and I, I have to say it was it was lovely but as I say to people the books in the bookshops might, might pay for the electric, but the ebooks pay the mortgage. And so for me, being with a digital first publisher works perfectly. And I wouldn't want to be with anybody else. And that's why I continue to um, sign more, more deals with Bookature. And I have told them they'll have to get security to throw me out when they eventually don't want to publish the books anymore. And they're happy with that. I'm happy with that. But there is... There is nothing that any other publisher could give me that Bookature don't. I don't have an agent. Everything is transparent with me and my editor and the marketing team. Because when I joined Bookature, it was four people, which was Oliver who founded it. There was Kim, the publicity manager. There was Claire, the publishing director. And then Keshani, who had brought me on board she then joined the team as my editor so she was my editor for the first eight books so it was a very small team and it's a much bigger team now but it's still as transparent and I can send anybody an email or have a chat with anybody on the phone any any time at all everyone is accessible and so I, I there's no no cause at all for me to want to be 
published by anybody else. And ultimately, I'm a huge, um, hugely loyal person. And they, after all those years and a very bad experience, Booker Tour gave the books a try. They gave me and Kim Stone a chance. And that will never, ever be forgotten because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. And I do still pinch myself every day that I am lucky enough to call something that I love doing a job. And that never gets old. (laughs) You know, every single day I I realise how lucky I am. And and so there is nothing, nothing any any other publisher could do for me that Booker Jewel don't. So no, I'm not moving. They're stuck with me. (laughs) I I actually I love that you're so positive and grateful about your publisher because many authors obviously have disappointing experiences but it sounds like you had all your disappointment before you got your publisher and now you're happy but we should point out that you joined in 2014 as you mentioned it was very early and I think I'm just checking 2017 Bookature was bought by Hachette and so is no longer the I know you said it still has the same feeling for you, but it is quite different now. So I don't want to give the impression to people listening that it's the same. Uh, it's not even the same company anymore. Basically, it it has changed. But obviously, your experience is is amazing. So those relationships have obviously kept you going through the whole time. But in turn, let's just talk about marketing uh, for a minute because you mentioned marketing there. Many people joining a publisher think that they never have to do marketing again because the publisher does that. So what kinds of marketing things do you have to do, and and what does Bookature do? I mean, I'm really not very good at it, but what I try and do is is the publicity and marketing team there are are fabulous and they know what I'm comfortable with because I'm a huge social anxiety sufferer. So in-person things is not something I'm uh, very good at doing. So I've only recently, I think COVID got me able to do podcasts and Facebook lives and interviews you know that that way I'm a huge um, anxiety sufferer so these things tend to bigger things tend to paralyze me so I can't write people listeners with uh, anxiety will completely get what I'm talking about but what I try and do is stay accessible so Kim and Noel and Sarah and the rest of the team they are looking for opportunities where we can you know, advertise the books or or just get some coverage or around publication days and that kind of thing. And what I try and do is to interact as much as I possibly can on social media, um, on Twitter, on Facebook. I've, I've got to be honest, I can't, I can't get my head around Instagram. I've tried. And TikTok is a complete unknown quantity to me. Um, <laughs> So I've got my author page on Facebook and the website and I just try and interact in the book groups, the book clubs online and, and that kind of thing and respond to all the messages. When there's a new book out, that's that kind of takes over the day job because it's suddenly it's like this whoosh of attention, which is fabulous. And I am allowed to spend publication day completely on social media and do nothing else. So that's what I try and do, you know, and then whatever whatever it is that Kim, Sarah and Noel tell me to do. <laughs> well, that's great because... 
Yeah, I think if you, as you say, you're open to their suggestions, but then you are participating in a very positive way, like being on on this show. Your publicist did approach me, but your participation is wholehearted. Like you, you sound, and you. It's interesting you mentioned anxiety. I also have the same thing. Like not maybe not as bad, but um, going to London Book Fair last week, I was it was an absolute nightmare. I mean, I I I was so scared, and I sometimes get on the phone like this, and my heart is pounding and so I I, that doesn't necessarily go away but as you say you kind of just have to go well this is my dream job and I have to do this right you have to talk yourself into it well now now doing things like this now I just see them as having a chat and Julie kind of put that in in my head she was like look you're in your own home you're in your own environment where you feel comfortable you're just going to chat with people which a couple of years ago wouldn't have been as easy as it is now because doing this I would be conscious of my accent and I'll be trying to cover it and I would think that I'm just going to say the wrong thing and all these things are going on in your head while you're trying to talk and and Julie would just keep saying to me just be yourself speak (laughs) like yourself people know you come from the black country it doesn't matter how you try and hide it it's going to come through and just be yourself so now it's just I'm going online to have a chat and that's it. And so it's far more enjoyable than, you know, it, it used to be when I think, oh, God, I'm going to say this wrong. I'm going to do this wrong. I'm going to mess this up. I'm not going to say this. And and now I just don't think about it. I just I just roll with it now, which is a lot less stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And, and you're a fantastic interview, by the way. And I love your accent. And yeah. I think people listening will love your accent. And this is so funny. We judge ourselves by standards that other people might not judge us by. <laughs> It's true. It's true because oh, I, I just I had a delivery guy the other day, and he went because uh, we we sort of like live just out of the black country in Worcestershire, and he he delivered some soil, and he went, oh, that's a brummy accent. I went, no, it isn't. It's black country, and you could get killed for saying things like that, you know. And that's the thing; it's always an association with a brummy accent, and which I think is viewed quite negatively. Brummie and black country, you know, we like to keep the difference. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, I think it's brilliant. So tell people where they can find you and your books online. uh, Definitely on Amazon, on iBooks, on Kobo. So, yeah, they're all out there. The paperbacks are available. The audio is available. So, yeah, I think they're pretty much spread across all all of the online mediums. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Angela. That was great. No, it's been brilliant. It's been lovely to have a chat. It's it's flown by. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope you found the interview with Angela interesting and also encouraging since she found success after so many years of trying and also a good fit with a publisher, which I really love to hear because it's very rare to hear such enthusiasm. <laughs> so I have an in-between episode coming this week on the tax implications of NFTs and cryptocurrency. Since I've been talking a lot about the creative side, we need to think about the business side, especially as more book NFT platforms are starting to launch. So if you're uh, at all interested in cryptocurrency, NFTs for the book side or for the uh, investing side or whatever you think these things are, <laughs> then have a look this week after ages of trying to find answers on the accounting side I finally have it so very exciting to share that interview and thanks to patrons of course who support that extra time 
Then it's back to business. Next Monday, I'm talking to Derek Sivers about independence and selling direct. So many of you will have read Derek's book, Anything You Want, and heard his story of growing CD Baby, the first company to help musicians sell their music direct to fans. Uh, He sold that company, gosh, probably a decade ago now. And we have a wide ranging discussion around what he thinks about writing and publishing and selling direct these days. So in the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.